Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January the 6th, 2022. It is currently 5.23 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, located right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas, where I am currently surrounded by a pack of wild dogs. Okay, just just because we're dealing with some very serious situations, I'm just going to take just a few minutes for a little bit of humor, but based off actual events. Okay, so I I fit we were we're, we are reviewing a sermon on the book of Micah. For this week's Bible study exercise, we are currently taking a detour and reviewing a sermon on Micah chapter five, right? And yes, I've offered a lot of critique, a lot of criticism. We've been struggling with some very difficult things, trying to understand it. So I'm in the middle of that live broadcast. We reached the hour mark and I realized, okay, we've got to stop and I've got to break this up and and, and then come back on the air and do do another part. I, I, I literally reach over here to the laptop, hit the stop button, to end the live broadcast. And oh, I mean, literally the second I hit the stop button, I hear, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like, I'm not saying this is accurate. It sounds like there's 50 dogs right there near the front of the church just going crazy. They are barking, yelling, screaming. Well, they're not yelling, they're barking, they're howling. Okay, they sell, I mean, it's just like, it, it sounds like they're trying to rip something into, into pieces. I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, okay, obviously my, my sermon review really made them mad, but they were just losing their minds. So I, I went over there to try to look what was going on. I was, I didn't want to open the door because it sounded like, I mean, it, uh, it sounded like the end of the world. And finally, finally, they kind of moved away. They moved to the back of the church. I can, I can still hear them barking some. I don't know what's going on. The reason I, I didn't want to just walk out there, not only did the dog sound like they had lost their absolute mind and possibly demon-possessed. Okay, a little bit of joke there. I don't believe the dogs were actually demon-possessed, but they sounded like it. It sounded like something from a horror movie, but they're in this part of nowhere, Texas, we get a lot of these wild pigs, these wild, I mean, these things are big. They're scary looking. I I think I've told the story about the other night getting ready to leave. And I walked around the corner of the building and there was standing one of those wild pigs. And it, I, I thought I was, it was going to, you know, come after me. So um, I, I don't know what was going on out there. The, all the dogs have decided to move on to somewhere else. Maybe, maybe, Maybe they're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. The podcast, it's it's beginning. It's start. Maybe they were just coming to the door to say, hey, we didn't want you to stop. And so now that I'm, now they're like, oh, look. And they've got all of their phones and they're, they're, they're laying down going, let's listen to this sermon review. Because as a dog, I've been waiting for a long time for someone to explain to me Micah chapter five. Okay, that's obviously not what's happening. But the dogs appear to be calm now. So hopefully we will not have any disruptions. Hopefully they're all listening. So for, 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 for hopefully for the next 45 minutes to an hour, we will have peace, no disturbance, as we once again turn our attention to Micah chapter five, because Micah chapter five has already disrupted enough of our peace, uh, disrupted my sleep, has caused us enough problems because it's a very difficult chapter. Okay. I know, I don't know. I, I can't speak for everyone else, but here I, this is just a rule I have. I know not a lot of people like this rule, but here's my rule. When I listen to a sermon 
or if I listen, or if I'm sitting in a church and so, a pastor basically says, a lot of people say this is complicated, but it's really not that complicated. I, you know, the Bible's really easy to understand. Whenever they make these claims, it just, I, I just, I almost want to just get up and walk out or just turn off the sermon because to me, it's so misleading. The Bible is filled with complexity. It's filled with difficulties. It is filled with things that there, there are, I mean, I mean, put it this way. If it was so easy, then why is there so many, so much disagreement over 2000 years of church history? Why can't we agree on baptism? Why can't we agree on the Lord's Supper? Why can't even we agree about salvation? Why can't we agree on literally anything? Um, so if, if it was so easy, then there would be more agreement, right? I, I would think so. I, I, maybe, maybe I'm just foolish, but I, I, I hate the fact that it's downplayed as being so easy when in reality, it's clearly full of complexity. So we are in Micah chapter five and we're reviewing a sermon. Now, I'm, I don't have time to go back and, re, and to review our review. So you'll definitely need to go back and listen to everything so that you know what's going on. But I want to at least do this. If you have your Bible, Micah chapter five, Micah chapter five. In our review of this sermon, we've reached, to, we've reached verse three. I'm gonna read for you Micah five, one, two, and three, give you kind of a basic understanding of where I think we are versus where this sermon has taken us. I think the sermon has taken us so far away from an actual understanding of the text that's not even funny. And how he's handling verse three is absolutely baffling to me. But let's let's see what we can do. Micah chapter five, verse one. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Now, according to the sermon we are listening to, this is referencing the Assyrians who are coming in against Ju- against Jerusalem, against Judah. And that the judge of Israel here is Hezekiah, who is somehow insulted and suffers humiliation. Now, we don't think that fits because, well, the Assyrians don't actually take Jerusalem. They are defeated. They they retreat in abject defeat. They are uh, over 186,000 are supernaturally killed by God in, in over a night. Uh, in a night, it's Jerusalem is not taken. Hezekiah is not humiliated. Um, they, the, this sermon that we are reviewing also claims that Hezekiah tried to make an alliance with the Babylonians to, to stand against the Assyrians. And we don't have anything that confirms that. In fact, everything seems to say that what Hezekiah did is he called, he called in Isaiah the prophet and he listened to what Isaiah had to say and he called upon God to help them. So the whole thing the, the whole claim made in the sermon doesn't make any sense. What we think this is referencing is this is referencing the Babylonians who's coming upon Judah. The king is Zedekiah. Zedekiah is humiliated because when he is made king by the, by the Babylonians to even start his reign, he's, he's already paying tribute to them. He's already humiliated. He decides he's tired of the Babylonians. So he tries to make a, he rebels and tries to make some kind of an agreement and alliance with the Egyptians. It all fails Finally, Zedekiah is not only is Jerusalem taken, everything is destroyed. Zedekiah is taken into Babylonian captivity. He watches, he has to watch his sons be killed. Then he has his eyes basically ripped out 
and he dies in Babylonian captivity. He is humiliated. He is defeated. Judah's in Babylonian captivity. They are humiliated. They are defeated. And it's in the midst of that humiliation, in the midst of that defeat by the Babylonians, that the beautiful prophecy is found in 5.2. But thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you be little among thousands of Judah, yet out of thee he shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. It's like, hey, Judah, you're in Babylonian captivity. You're humiliated. You're defeated. Your king, the judge of Israel, has been smacked in the face. He's in, he's in chains. He's going to die in Babylonian captivity. You're, you've been completely humiliated. But listen, you're not going to be completely destroyed because coming from little Bethlehem is going to come the ruler who will rule, who will reign. He's coming. Don't give up. So that means you're not going to be destroyed. Because Judah, Bethlehem is going to remain and from thee is going to come, well, the Messiah is going to come Christ. And we know uh, Micah, if I said Matthew, if we know, if Micah 5, 2, we know that's a reference to Jesus because it's uh, cross-referenced or that it's referred to, quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. All right, that gets us to where we are, right? Now, the sermon has gone all kinds of crazy directions. He has then, he then transitioned into Micah chapter 5, verse 3 where we read these words. Therefore, will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Now, he has basically, all he's, all he's really explained is that the he here, that God is going to give up the Jews until the one who will be born of the woman is Jesus. Until Jesus is born, then they're going to return to Israel in some way, shape, or form. He's not really explaining how this works, where it works. He started doing weird cross-referencing. He made a cross-reference to John 16, where Jesus simply is using the illustration of a woman giving birth, that, that she has pain, but then afterwards there's joy and Jesus is liking it to the fact that he's going to dis, he's going to have to go where nobody knows and then he will return and bring joy which doesn't have anything to do with Micah 5:3 in any meaningful way shape or form it's not a direct reference it's I don't even know why he made that cross reference and he's getting ready now to go to Revelation chapter 12 and I don't know where I don't even know what cross references he's using so right now he's not really explained Micah 5:3 in any meaningful way but we're going to listen we're going to jump back into the sermon see what cross reference he's going to use and then we'll see if we can figure out Micah 53 and offer something better than that's what's been offered now, that's an 11 minute very quick review hopefully i did not misspeak or make any mistakes no one's coming into the chat to tell me that i misspoke if you ever hear me misspeak tell me in the chat so that i can correct it okay but hopefully that is a, a, as simple a review as i can obviously you can go back and listen to everything and then you'll be caught up because we didn't cover everything there. But are you ready? We're just going to jump back in. I believe it's Revelation 12 where he's headed. So I'm just going to go ahead and turn to Revelation 12. I don't know why you would go to Revelation 12 here for a supposed cross-reference, but okay. <laughs> okay. I'm just, I'm just looking at Revelation 12 going where? I, I believe it was Revelation 12. We're going to hear. Let's just jump back into the sermon and we'll see where this is going to go. Here we go. 
This in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. The Apostle John, again, speaks of this matter in the book of Revelation. Now stop there. When he says, again... The, uh, the, uh, John is going to talk about this matter. What are you saying that in John 16, that they were referencing what was going on in Micah 5? And are you saying that what's getting ready to be mentioned in Revelation is referencing Micah 5, 3? I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know where, I, look, I, I, I don't know what hermeneutical principle what cross-referencing rule that you're using and coming up with these cross-references, it makes no sense to me. So, But well, let's see what he's going to find in, in Revelation 12. Maybe there is a very good cross-reference here that I'm just not, it's not coming to my mind right now. So, so remember, I don't listen to these sermons in advance. So let me just wait, let him say it, and then I can react. I'm trying to react a little because I'm just perplexed. Like Revelation 12, why wouldn't you go to Isaiah or Amos or like there's other, or, or why wouldn't you go to, to other parts of Micah. Like, I, I, I'm thinking of far better cross-references. So I'm a little perplexed here why we're way off in the New Testament saying that somehow this is addressing the same matter that's being talked about in Micah chapter 5. Like, okay, but let's, let's just see. Maybe I'm wrong. Let, let's see. Remember, the book of Revelation is thought by many to be a conclusion. The truth of the matter is it's a commencement. Some view it as a conclusion to life on earth as we know it, the return of Christ in that regard. The truth of the matter is it's a commencement of Christ's kingdom in the earth. And I labored for a long time preaching 38 sermons out of the book of Revelation to establish that fact. Look what it says here. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. You know how the Catholics will show Mary with all that stuff? That's why they do it, because of this. But the truth of the matter wasn't talking about Mary. It was talking about the covenanting, believing community. That oh, man, 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 man. Okay. Now, once again, he goes through, so he's going to go to Revelation 12, a chapter filled uh, with controversy and disagreement. In fact, he's going to the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations, but the book of Revelation. If I said Revelations, I apologize. The book of Revelation. And I mean, this is a book that just like, who can agree on the book of Revelation? Do you know anyone who can agree? So he's going to go to Revelation and going to try to attach this to Micah 5, 3. He dismisses the Catholic interpretation. You know, they say it's Mary and, you know, no, this is the, the, the covenant community. So the covenant community is the woman here who gives birth to the child. The covenant community gives birth to this child. Well, who is the child? If the child is Jesus, the covenant community gave birth to Jesus? If you say it's Israel, the nation, that the nation, get, in a sense, brings forth Jesus. So it's either Mary, who actually gave birth to Jesus, or he's saying it's the covenant community, it's, it's, the, it's a group of true Jews who give birth to Jesus. Or you could just say it's a general reference to Israel as a nation who brings forth the Messiah. Like, okay. I mean, like, like 
There's a lot of different ways of looking at this, but, but somehow this is connected to Micah five, three. Is this connected? Would this not be connected to, why is he connecting it to Micah five, three? And I'm even more perplexed. Wouldn't this be, make a reference to Micah five, two? Or, or is he not, is he, is he doing, did he go to verse three and now he's doing cross references for verse two? Now I'm even more perplexed. Because it sounds like that these verses would be referencing two. Let's just continue. That's what it was talking about, both Old Testament and New Testament. And how they brought forth Christ in the earth. That's what it was about here. The covenant community brought forth Christ on the earth. It was the covenant community that brought forth Christ on earth. It wasn't Mary. It was, I mean, Mary may be shocked to hear this. Hey, Mary, you didn't actually bring Christ on the earth. It was the covenant community. And she may be like, well, I, I, I think I'm the one who felt the, the birth pains, but okay, it's good to know. Okay. I mean, now I'm using being a little bit, a little bit joking here, but it's just, I just like dogmatically, it was the covenant community who brought forth Christ. It wasn't, Mary is not being spoken of here, but, but I'm pretty sure it was Mary who gave birth. I'm pretty sure it was. I'm not saying that that's how we should interpret Revelation 12. I just think we have to make sure if we're going to talk about who gave birth, it was Mary. I, I think that's that's a historical fact. Now, if you want to say, but allegorically, theoretically, it was the covenant community. Then, then what verses speak of the covenant community giving birth to Christ? I mean, he's going to Revelation 12 where there's, there's not even an agreement on it. it I, oh, okay. What John envisions here encompasses both Old Testament and New Testament believers. This is why, again, we see the number 12. 12 stars around the woman's head. 12 tribes of Israel. The woman represents the true believers, whether Jew or Gentile, as expressed in the form of Old Covenant Israel. They are the ones who travailed over the centuries to give birth to Christ. They remained faithful to the Lord to see that take place. Satan did all he could do to destroy the seed and prevent Christ from coming, but he prevailed. He was born. He did die. He did rise from the dead. Amen? When it talks about the remnant here in verse 3, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Who are the remnant of Christ's brethren? Well, how many were at the day of Pentecost waiting in the upper room? All of which were Jews. Only 120, right? That's a remnant. That's a small number of people. All right, so make, make sure I'm understanding Micah 5, 3. All right, therefore, God gives them up. This is Judah going into, I, I, he never really said, is this, this is Israel going, uh, being taken by the Assyrians and Judah going into Babylonian captivity. They're going to remain there until she, which travaileth, not Mary, which uh, the, co- the covenant community travails, they bring forth, they uh, uh, hath brought forth, going to bring forth a son. Jesus is born. Then the remnant of his brother shall return. So Jesus is born, and then 33 years later, 
a remnant returns, and that is the 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Okay, I'm... I'm trying to follow. I am trying to follow this. I am trying to. It's going to be interesting to see how many commentaries agree with this approach. There's going to be some, but I'm just interested to see, is this the, is this the normal agreement? Now, now I'm assuming what he's going to see is with 120 and then, then on the day of Pentecost, you have the, what, 3,000 who believe. So I think he's going to say, so it, it's really like, it's not that they all return right after his birth. He's born. Then he goes through the entire earthly ministry. And then the remnant starts returning in like at, at different periods. Is, is that where this is going to go? I, I, let, me, let me see. I'm, I'm assuming that's where this is going to go. And from there, his kingdom has grown and expanded throughout the earth. And yet we are part of the remnant too, as compared to the total number of people in the world. Those who are. Okay, so we are a part of the remnant. So, so this is his brethren doesn't refer to Jews. This refers to anyone who is saved and we return to Israel by salvation. So this is not returning to the nation. This is returning to spiritual. This sounds like it's going very amillennial here. This is where this sounds like it's going. Sounds like this is going very amillennial. That, 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 this has to be amillennial. This has to be. Um, so, so, so Jesus is born, then people get saved. And by getting saved, now you return to Israel. So now you become his brethren and you return to Israel. This is all not, not literal Israel. This is not, you're not returned to literal. This is not real. This is not literal people. Or let me think, say this. This is not people of Israel who are put into captivity who return. No, this is Anyone saved returns to spiritual Israel. That, that, I think that's where he's going to go. Maybe I'm wrong, but that, that's what it sounds like. Our true Christians, true Jews, his people have always been a remnant. Jesus said, narrow is the way, few there be that enter in. And yet he accomplishes his purpose in the earth with a small number of people. The elect of God moving forward in the earth. Verse 4 says and that, that, that's the explanation of verse three okay so oh wow wow so in his mind so um they will be given up that's the jews in captivity so the jews are going to be given the actual physical israel is going into captivity they're going to be given up either in babylonian or going taken away by the assyrians so literal israel is gone then a the then a not literal woman a figurative covenant community will then give birth and bring forth that's they're they're going to bring forth Jesus Jesus is born then a remnant returns and that remnant is not literal Israel that literal that that it's now figurative Israel in the sense that it's made up of all of Jew and Gentile and anyone who gets saved we re, we are the remnant that returns to Israel he didn't even exp, he didn't even define what Israel was there at, the, at, at, at as returning that that's the best I can understand his position and no one accused me of trying to misrepresent his position I'm playing his entire sermon. The fact that he doesn't spend any more time than that on verse three 
that don't blame me that you got to blame the one doing the preaching. I, all I can do is try to interpret what is being preached and that's the best he gave us. So let's, let's do a little bit of work really quick. All right. A little bit of work. All right. Here we go. First, let's read all of the translations. Okay. Micah 5, 3. We did this last time. Let's do it again. All right. Here we go. Micah 5, 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until, now just please note, Israel will be abandoned. Now, so the covenant community will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. So the covenant community is going to be abandoned, but that covenant community is going to bear a son. And then the rest of the brothers will return to the covenant community. I'm trying to understand it the way he's he's preaching it. So Israel is the covenant community. It's not true national Israel, right? But he, he, no, actually that's wrong. In this sermon, he identified the ones who are being abandoned or giving up as actual Israel going into captivity. So let, let me, let me try to interpret the way he's interpreting it. So therefore, literal Israel is going to be given up literally until the time when the covenant community covenant community. So the the true Israel will then bear a son. Then the rest of his brothers will return. So, so, so the rest of those who are not a part of the covenant community will return. So who's the rest of the, all the rest of the lost people are going to return to join the Israelites. The New Living Translation. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. Now see now at that point when you see they're going to return to their own land, clearly this start, starts falling apart unless now Israel is not Israel, land is not land, return is just means salvation. He's now spiritualizing it to no end. I don't even know how you even try to process this. All right? Uh, the ESV, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth and the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel. I have no idea what is t- talking about here. Now, in, on biblehub.com, they give some cross-references, All right, Here's some cross-references they give. Isaiah 10, 20. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on him who struck them, but they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So there's coming a day uh, that that all of the, 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 the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on him who struck them, That's but they will truly rely on the Lord, the, the Holy One of Israel. Hosea eleven eighteen. How could I give you up, O Ephraim? How could I surrender you, O Israel? How could I make you like Adma? How could I treat you like Zeboilim? My uh, Zeboilim, my heart is turned within me. My compassion is stirred. So Hosea seems to be saying, "Hey, how could I just completely give you up?" There's this promise that uh, that no, that I'm gonna. My compassion was stirred, and I was gonna have to bring you back. Amos. Uh, Zeboilim, I think, yeah, that's how you would say that. Okay, Amos 5, 15. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Micah 4, 9. Why do you now cry aloud? Is there no king among you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? 
writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you will leave the city and camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. Therefore, you will be rescued. Therefore, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Micah 5, 7. Then the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, the showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many people, like a lion among beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which trample and tears it it as it passes through with no one to rescue them. This seems to be saying that, hey, they're going to, they're going to be put in a bad place, but the promise seems to be that they're going to somehow be restored or returned. Those cross-references don't provide a lot of assistance, but I just wanted to read them because those are better than going to Revelation 12 or John 16, right? Uh, Let's go and look at some commentaries here, all right? Uh, Okay, according to one commentary, therefore will he give them up. There is a suggestion here of a parable setting forth the smallness of Bethlehem, which gave birth to the mighty ruler that was to come from it. So the nation was brought very low before the nativity of the virgin born. Now, that don't talk anything about the remnant returning, but it's this basic idea. Hey, look, they're going to be given up. That's a literal Israel, Judah, or, or I should say literal Judah, given up to Babylonian captivity. They're going to be brought low before the Messiah is born. They're going to be brought really low. In fact, when you get to Matthew, where is Israel? Where, where's Judah? They're under Roman control. So they are brought low. So that's all literal, right? That's all literal. Pulpit commentary. Therefore, because God hath designed to punish before delivering, And this deliverance is to arise from the little Bethlehem, not from Jerusalem. This presupposes that the house of David will have lost the throne and have been reduced to a low condition. We'll give them up. Jehovah will give up the people to its enemies. This is the way in which the house of David shall come to low estate. She which travaileth hath brought forth. Many commentators have taken the travailing woman to be the afflicted community of Israel or Zion, but we may not altogether reject the old interpretation, which regards this as a prophecy of the birth of Christ from the virgin in accordance with the received messianic exposition of Isaiah's great prediction, behold, the virgin shall conceive. Such an announcement comes in naturally after the announcement of the ruler coming forth from Bethlehem. Now, I like that. A lot of people may want to say, this is somehow the community that's going to give birth. But he said, why should we reject the old understanding? Wait, in other words, going back into early church history, what well, this is Mary giving birth to Jesus. You know, the virgin who's going to bring forth a child, which predicted in Isaiah 7. Like, why Why would you just say, no, this is the covenant community? No, why wouldn't you say this is Mary? I mean, she's literally, like, I, it's so, we're, we're going to leave the literal woman who literally travailed in labor, who literally gave birth to turn it into a figurative 
covenant community who gave birth. <laughs> Why would you move away from the literal to the figurative, to that which is theoretical versus that which is not actually, here's a woman actually who was literally in Bethlehem who literally gave birth. I mean, is think of it this way, five and five, two. Is Bethlehem real? Yeah. Okay. Was, was the one born literally from everlasting? Yes. He's the eternal son of God. Then why wouldn't the, in verse three, speaking of someone bringing the child forth, why wouldn't it be that woman who's going to be in literal Bethlehem? I, I don't know. I don't even know what is going on anymore. Okay. Um, I put it this way. Why wouldn't you at least acknowledge this other possible interpretation in your sermon? That, that, I still don't understand why pastors don't do that. Um, such an announcement comes in naturally after the announcement of the ruler coming forth from Bethlehem. Israel shall be oppressed until the time ordained when she who is to bear, bear shall bring forth. Then rather until uh, and or until the remnant of his brethren shall return unto with the children of Israel. The remnant of his brethren are the rescued of the Judeans who are the brethren of Messiah according to the flesh. These in a literal sense shall return from exile together with the others in a spiritual sense shall be converted and be joined with true Israelites, the true cedar Abraham. All right, so they, they tried to put forth a, a, a literal and a figurative. Here's what I know. Jesus was going to come. Here's what I know. Jesus was going to come and he was going to be born. Now, when he's born and he lives, Israel is not immediately restored. They don't get power. They don't get the land. They're under Roman control. Jesus lives his life under the Roman control, telling them to render under Caesar what is Caesar, right? He, he, he explains that his kingdom is not of this world. He's, he is mocked, sped upon. Even the people turn on him. Even Israel, for the most part, turns on him, say, crucify, crucify. He's crucified. He's, he, he dies. He's buried. He raises the third day. He is then seen by many people. Then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then at some point, and then after he ascends to the right hand of the Father, it's not many years later that Israel is wiped off the face of the earth. They're never given. They don't get the land. They don't get the throne. They don't get anything. They get destroyed. And they stay destroyed for till 1948 when they're restored as a nation. At this point, they still don't have control over everything in Jerusalem. They don't even have control over the Temple Mount. They are, they are, they are still, in a sense, struggling, don't even have complete control. They're, in a sense, still in a bad situation. But if we believe that the Old Testament makes all these promises that has never been fulfilled to Israel in a literal way, at some point, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to sit on the throne. And guess what? Israel will be restored to the land. And then those promises will be fulfilled. Is that how we under, I don't, you can try to just work this all, all kinds of weird. Well, you see, he, when he was born, some of the Judeans would be re, re, brought back. But I mean, it's not like Jesus' birth restored Israel to any meaningful anything. And even if you say, well, they're, they're restored or, or a few of the Jews came back. Well, first they turn against the Messiah and then they're destroyed in 70 AD. So like what, how is that a fulfillment of anything? It seems that there is a mixture of possibly first coming and second coming ideas happening in the verse. But he's jumped down to verse four. So let's go back to Micah 5, 4. 
There's far more work we could do on three, but I just, I mean, I don't even understand what's going on. Verse four, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall abide for now. Shall he be great unto the ends of the earth? All right, so we have four. Five, okay. All right, verse five may, okay. Now that I'm thinking about verse five, I should have thought about verse five as possible his explanation that this is Hezekiah and the Assyrians. I should have thought about verse five, but what frustrates me is when he was trying to make his argument that verse one is about Hezekiah and the Assyrians, he never bothered to mention verse five. Now, now if we, if, because verse, the Assyrians are mentioned in verse five. Remember, I, for my Babylonian concept in Zedekiah, I keep going back to chapter four, but I'm trying to keep it in some kind of chronological order. But just, just throwing that out there, because I just looked down at verse five and all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, the Assyrians are mentioned. But he's in verse four. Let's see what he's going to do with verse four. Let's see what he's going to do in verse four. Oh, this is so, so complicated, all right? But here we go. And he, talking about Christ, shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus. Now, we have to ask ourselves, okay, so Jesus came. Now, unless we have to ask yourself, does this describe his first coming? He stands and feeds in strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. Is that abiding in the land? They, is that, is that referring to Israel? Um, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Is that describing Jesus in his first coming? Or does that seem to refer to Jesus in a second coming and some literal reign in Jerusalem? How is the, how is the messianic kingdom described? Or you're going to spiritualize all of this and say, this is all just about salvation. That, that's what typically the amillennial view will say. And the only reason I'm pointing out the amillennial view, just so that you remember, I went, if you name all of the different schools that I attended, all the Bible colleges, all the seminaries, all the Bible institutes, I went to schools that were amillennial. I went to schools that were premillennial. I went to schools, well, I didn't really go to any schools that were necessarily fully preterist, but I, I definitely learned the preterist view. And I had to write papers from all of these different perspectives because I wasn't going to these schools and in, 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 in a sense to argue with them to try to give them my view. I was going to these schools to learn their views. So I had to write school, I had to write papers that went with the view that they were giving me and pass test articulating their view. So I know the amillennial view. I'm not going to say I'm an expert on the amillennial view, but in other words, I've had to at least study the amill view. I've had to study the premill view. I've had to study all the different views of eschatology. So when I start detecting certain language, it starts sounding like the Amil view. He may not be Amil. Right now, I don't know what he is because of the way he's handling the text, but it he, he definitely kind of spiritualized verse three. So I'm kind of waiting for the same spiritualizing of verse four, which tends to be more in line. And I know Amillennial hates being told that they spiritualize, but they definitely, in many cases, run away from any literal, like, you know, the person giving birth, that's not Mary. That's the covenant community. Okay, well, that's moving away from a more literal interpretation. 
is repeatedly referred to, repeatedly refers to us as sheep, right? And he is the shepherd caring for his flock. And that's exactly what Mike is talking about here, looking forward to Christ's coming. It says at the end of verse 4, For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. His kingdom expands throughout the earth. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it talks about Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, his kingdom goes everywhere, invade. Okay, so he's speaking of the spiritual kingdom, not a literal kingdom, not a literal, not a literal kingdom, not a literal land, not literal Israel. Spiritual Israel made up of Jew and Gentile. Land not is not really land, and the remnant is made up of all people, and and his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. All right, that 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 that's kind of going in more of an millennial direction. All right, here we go. Aids every inch of this planet all the people groups of the earth. That's what his kingdom does. Now in verses 5 and 6, this too is continuing the future hope, the coming Messiah in his reign. It may not seem like it, but it is. Okay, now, he's going to get to 5 and 6, and he's saying it's still pointing future. All right Now that's why he probably did not mention the Assyrians in 5 and 6, because uh, it, that's why he did not mention verse 5 and 6 and their mention of the Assyrians when he was covering verse 1 because he believes verse 1 was referencing something that was happening at the time and verse 5 and 6 is referencing something happening in the future. So I'm, I'm assuming what direction he's going to go is that the Assyrians are not literal Assyrians, that, they're, that that's figurative for simply the enemies of God. I, I think I, so. I think he's going to go that these are not literal Assyrians. I think that's the r- direction he's going to go. I could be wrong. I'm just, I'm just predicting, predicting. Like it's like when you watch a movie and you hit pause, going, you know what? I bet you that's the first person to die in this movie. You make your predictions. Okay, I'm making my prediction here and my sermon review. I think he's going to say these are not literal Assyrians. These are figurative of God's enemy because he's already spiritualized everything else. Why would you? Why? Why? Why would he not continue that hermeneutic? And verse 5 and 6. Let's see what happens here. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. And this one, once again, talking about Christ, shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Micah is making clear Christ's kingdom will encompass all the nations of the earth and will be victorious. All right. So Christ's kingdom is going to encompass all the earth and be victorious. Now, he's obviously referring to a spiritual kingdom. So Christ's spiritual kingdom is encompassing all the earth and it is victorious. Victorious in a, in a, in a way where the actual enemies are being destroyed. In other words, is, none of that is literal. None of that, like, these are not going to be literal land, literal palaces, literal swords. None, none of this is going to be literal. This is all going to be figuratively Done. I, that's, that has to be the direction he's getting ready to go. Let, let, me, let me see if I'm wrong. 
when he says these things in verses 5 and 6. Micah is using Assyria figuratively here. How do we know that? Well, because we know this because it never happened historically, number one. There wasn't some guy who came back and beat up on the Assyrians. Okay, now, very important hermeneutical, hermeneutical principle. It, first of all, it's, it's brilliant to look for a historical fulfillment. All right, hey, so there's no historical fulfillment. Now, his argument, because there's no historical fulfillment, none of this ever happened. Well, then, clearly, then it, this cannot be a, a literal prophecy because it never happened. It cannot be a literal prophecy. Well, let me just stop right there and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. There was a time that literally verse two had never been fulfilled. There was a time like there's, there's scripture after scripture that there was a time it had never been literally fulfilled. But why would you then? Okay. Let me, let me try to say it this way. Every prophecy that's given, there was a time that it had not been literally fulfilled as of yet. Did that change the fact that it ultimately was literally fulfilled? There was never a time that a virgin had brought forth a son and his name was called Jesus. In fact, that prophecy was made and it took 700 years before it was literally fulfilled. The one who was going to be ruler over Israel had never literally been born in Bethlehem, but it literally happened. Just because something had never literally happened in the past doesn't mean that you then find the prophecy and then immediately say it's figurative. It's not literal. Because if you did, just think if they did, if, just think if that was the way you approached the Old Testament prophecies when you, when you, if you lived during that time. Okay. It's not going to be a literal virgin. It's not going to be a literal child. It's not going to be literal Bethlehem. Just, you would destroy every prophecy. Every prophecy at one point was not, had not been literally fulfilled. You don't immediately look for a figurative fulfillment. You look for a literal fulfillment unless there's something in the text that tells you not to look for a literal fulfillment. His argument is, well, it never happened. So therefore it can't be literal. Or here's a thought. It's going to happen literally in the future. Oh wow, that is that is that a possible is that is that possible? Could could, could it be? Maybe I I don't know. Everything else has literally been fulfilled, right? Was it literally fulfilled that the king of Israel was smacked in the face with a a rod, humiliated? Yes. Were they literally taken into Babylonian captivity? Yes. Was it literally true that a, a baby was born and Bethlehem was going to be ruler of the nations who was from everlasting? Yes. Was it literally that they were going to be given up, put into captivity and suffer until the time that, that and that someone was going to travail tra- tra- and bring forth a son? Well, that son was literally, they were literally put into captivity and a literal woman gave literal birth to a literal son. And then that son somehow is going to bring about all of these these other things. So his argument is, hey, it, it's never happened. So therefore, it's got to be figurative. That, that, that is not, <laughs> that, that, that logic would destroy, you know, oh, so here's the, so think of it this way. Oh, there's a prophecy that Jesus will return. Has it ever happened? No. Well, then it's not literal. It's a figurative return. 
Think of every prophecy in the Bible that has not been literally fulfilled yet. Do you say, well, then it's not literally going to happen? No, you think it's still going to happen. And if the prophecies in the past happened literally, why wouldn't prophecies pertaining to the future happen literally? You say, well, how, are the, how is it going to happen? I don't have to explain the how. I just have to know if it's prophesied that it will based off all of the previous prophecies that happened literally, okay, literally, right? It's not like, hey, Abram, Sarah, I'm going to give you, or Abraham, Sarah, I'm going to give you a baby. Well, it's probably not a literal baby. It's probably a figurative baby because no one our age has ever had a baby. Well, it turned out to be a literal baby. Literally, Sarah gave birth to a literal baby. It was literal. I mean, think of all the prophecies. Literal, literal, literal. No, but now this one, this one can't be literally happened. It's got to be figurative. Let, let's see what he, he goes on to say here. Okay, there was none for Israel. It's still continuing to talk about Christ. He being the deliverer, he being the one who would expand his kingdom throughout the earth. We must remember the prophets routinely addressed those they were speaking to and referred to the future in terms drawn from their own historical circumstances. So here they are surrounded by the Assyrians. The Assyrian army was made up of men from many nations. Remember that? I talked about that in an earlier sermon. Christ's kingdom will conquer them all is what Micah is pointing to. He even includes to appeal to those he is preaching to in their current circumstances, the land of Nimrod. Now, wait a minute. Christ's kingdom is going to conquer them all. Are you saying that Christianity is going to spread throughout all the world and conquer everyone in a spiritual sense, in a salvific sense? Or are you saying Christ is going to return, rule from Jerusalem and conquer the earth literally? Is this a figurative or a literal thing? Like, it seems like he's going with a figurative. So spiritually speaking, Christ's kingdom is going to conquer the whole earth and be victorious. Well, when when is that going to happen where everyone on earth is going to be saved? Because I don't know of a day when everyone is going to be saved. Never. So there's always going to be those that the kingdom of God doesn't conquer because they're going to rebel and reject the thing, the gospel of Christ. So, so, but ultimately they will be destroyed. So, so well, are there... Is that, is that what this is referencing? I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm afraid at some point this is going to go off the rails and we're going to be stuck. But I, I'm going to try to let him go a little bit further. And then I'm just going to read a couple of commentaries on this verse to see how they approach it. Do you know what this is referring to when it says there? They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. The land of Nimrod is where Babylonia resided. That was their search situation. Mike is pointing out that the Messiah's rule will conquer all nations, both the Assyrians who were attacking them at this time and also the Babylonians who they were wrongly making league with. They would all be defeated by Christ's kingdom. Now, once again, he, he accuses Hezekiah making a, a, a pack with ba ba the Babylonians. He, he's already made a, an accusation of that. 
He, again, he's saying that this is the Assyrians and that Christ's kingdom is going to defeat the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but not in a literal sense and a spiritual sense because everyone in Assyria and everyone in Babylon is going to be saved. Is is no, but no, no. no. So, uh, like, okay, all right. Let, let's see where he's going to go with this. He's using the Assyrians figuratively to show that Christ's kingdom will conquer all the kingdoms of the earth. Remember Daniel 2? Go listen to my sermon if you forget what I was talking about. Extremely important. Now in verses 7 through 9. That, that's it. <laughs> what in the world is this? I have never, this is maddening. How can he just move on? He didn't explain anything. I don't have a clue what he's even trying to, figuratively, Christ's kingdom is going to conquer the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Yay! Hey, hey, you guys who are suffering under the, well, the Assyrians really don't, they don't suffer. Okay, but, okay. Hey guys, those Assyrians and those Babylonians, they're all going to be conquered in a spiritual way by the kingdom of Christ. Somehow. Not going to really explain it. I'm not going to tell you if everyone's going to be saved. If some of them are going to be saved, I'm not going to really explain it. If you read, if you read Micah 5, 5, like in other translations, just to show you how this sounds and he will be our peace. Let's say that's, that's referring to Christ. He will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. Now I want to make sure you realize this. He says literally, literally they're under attack by the Assyrians literally. So it's a literal invasion, but figuratively, the Assyrians represent something other than the Assyrians. So he's using the Assyrians. They're literally being invaded, but figuratively, the Assyrians represent all lost people, and lost people are going to be conquered by the kingdom of God but but all lost people like I I I don't even understand what he's even tried to articulate. But just listen to how this just sounds if you read it. And it will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, and we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight commanders. And and he will be the source of peace when the Assyrians invade our land, break through our defenses. We will appoint seven rulers to watch over us, eight princes to lead us. So, I mean, everything here sounds very literal and he's kind of like, well, some of it's literal, some of it's figurative, but it all just really means that Christ's kingdom is going to conquer everybody. Everybody is going to be conquered. Doesn't explain how that takes place or anything. Or it doesn't, it just go listen to one of his other sermons. All right, I'm just going to read from a number of uh, commentaries. All right, here we go. And this man shall be the peace. He shall himself be peace. Um, and I say this is the same kind of expression David speaks of himself. Um, the sentence is connected with the former instead of the following passage with which the authorized ver- ver- version joins it. Okay, we could, we could break that down a little further. That's not a big help. All right, when the Assyrians shall come into the land, this may refer to the imminent apprehension of the invasion of Sennacherib, but the actual event does not correspond to it. It may look forward to the time when the enemies of Israel attacked the Jews and the Maccabean period and the shepherds, seven or eight, uh, an indefinite number successfully resisted the attacks upon the flock. 
The intention of the passage may be spiritually interpreted pointing to the eight principal strictly appointed men who as Christian pastors receive their commission from the Messiah. So they're like the, the, the referring to the actual Assyrians of that time. And that, that doesn't seem to fit. And everyone seems to agree. It doesn't fit because when does all of them are destroyed and all, that, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, the Maccabean period just seems to be weirdly out of order, right? Like, wait, so Christ is going to come and now we're going to go back and now we're going to go back before Christ came. That would be weirdly chronologically out of order. So then they say the future is somehow spiritual. Again, why would you make the fulfillment spiritual when everything else has been literal fulfillment? Literal people, literal nations, literal baby being born in Bethlehem. I mean, everything else is literal. Why would you go that direction? Let's see what the pulpit commentary does. All right, uh, under Messiah's rule shall be peace. That's how the, the uh, pulpit commentary summarizes this. Uh, some uh, One person considers these verses to have been inserted by an afterthought af- at, either to explain the many nations and many peoples of Micah 4, 11, and 13 or to rectify the omission of the period of foreign rule. Now, they're saying some people may, they're arguing some may have come back and inserted this as an afterthought. Like, okay, wait, this doesn't make sense. We need to insert something here. Now, that, now when you start saying those kinds of things, you start calling into question the doctrine of inspiration. I would, I would need some textual proof and that this was somehow inserted at some other time. Uh, they go on to say this may be reasonably allowed, but it is not necessary to the explanation of the paragraph which is merely a further description of Messiah's kingdom. Uh, and the Messiah shall be the peace. He shall be peace. Uh, the same ruler will not only bring peace and be the author of peace, but he himself peace, as Isaiah 9, 5 calls him the Prince of Peace. And St. Paul and Ephesians 2 are peace. Peace personified. Zechariah, and it says compare Zechariah 9, 9. It is best to put a full stop here and remove the colon at land in the next clause. There may, there may be an allusion to Solomon, the peaceful king, who erected the temple and whose reign exhibited the ideal of happy times. Well, why would you, why would this go back to Solomon? I mean, that makes no sense. Like this would be so chronologically out of order. It would make no sense. Hey, Jesus is coming. Wait, stop, time out. Now let's go all the way back to Solomon. Let, let's go back to some other time. That just seems to be confusing to me. Uh, when the Assyrians shall come, the prophet in this and the following verses shows what is that peace which Messiah shall bring. Asher is named as the type of Israel, uh, Israel's deadliest foe. And at, and at that, which even then was threatening the kingdom. Witness Sennacherib's invasion in Hezekiah's time. When the angel of the Lord smote the alien, the alien army with sudden destruction, 2 Kings 19. Uh, isn't that Sennacherib? They got Sennacheribs. Okay, all right. I, I'd have to verify here, but okay. The prophecy looks forward to a far, the prophecy looks forward to a far distant future when the world power is strayed against God's people. Uh, the details, as often in such prophecies, do not exactly s- suit the actual facts in contemporary history. Well, again, why would it fit contemporary? <sighs> okay, let me, let me try to explain this. This drives me crazy. All right. So here's what happens. Bible commentators come across a verse. 
The verse seems to make a prediction. The prediction doesn't seem to make any sense to the commentator, right? Wait, the Assyrians are going to come? Wait, the, where, where are the Assyrians today? Where, where are the Assyrians today? Aren't they destroyed? Doesn't make any sense. So this can't be something in the, in the future. This has to be something dealing with the past. This has to be something dealing with the present, or this has to be figurative, or this has to be spiritual. Let me remind you, this is the same issue that happened in the early church when it came to prophecies about Israel. Well, there is no Israel. Israel was destroyed in 70 AD. So it can't be literal Israel. It has to be figurative Israel. This can't be literal. This can't be real. There's no way. And so you spiritualize everything. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. Israel's back in the nation, back in the land. Wait, Israel's a nation again. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, time out, time out. Is it possible that maybe these prophecies are going to be literally fulfilled? Here's what I would challenge you to do. Go to ver- verse after verse in the Bible where prophecies are mentioned. Whether there are prophecy that was fulfilled 20 years after the prophecy, 50 years after the prophecy, or 100 years after the prophecy. Anytime God promises anything or prophesies anything, when he says something's going to happen, did it happen literally or figuratively? When he said a flood was going to come, did an actual flood come? An actual flood happened. When he said uh, that you're going to have a baby, was it a literal baby? Yes. When he said this nation is going to destroy this nation, did it literally happen? When he said Tyre and Sidon would be destroyed, did it literally happen? It literally happened over and over. When he said, promised that they were going to go into Babylonian captivity, was it a literal captivity? Yes. Over and over, literal, 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 literal. When he promised that a virgin was going to have a baby, was it literal? Yes. Everything's literal. So if you have a prophecy and you cannot find any historical fulfillment for it, then you have to look to the future. And you don't look to the future and spiritualize it because it doesn't fit in with our contemporary understanding of where are the Assyrians and who are the Assyrians. No, you have to just say somehow this has got to be literally fulfilled or I have to look for some kind of historical fulfillment unless I have to then spiritualize it. But if I spiritualize it, let me remind you of the danger that puts you in hermeneutically, then you have to go back and go, well, wait a minute. If that's not literal, then why is 5-2 literal? You say, well, 5-2 was literal. Right. So that's that not establishing the hermeneutic? See, the commentary is like, well, we, 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 we don't know what to do with this because it doesn't make any sense. All right. So what do you do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at something here. Oh, we're at an hour again. Unbelievable. This is going to take us 17 years to finish this sermon, but that's okay. All right. Um, This does no, this is, (laughs) this commentary is useless. Okay. So yeah, they, they don't even bother. They just, this is what that commentary did. Okay. And, and um, Micah chapter five, if I said Malachi, I apologize. Micah chapter 5, and this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword. All right, what what this commentary says is, well, the Messiah will bring victory over the gods, over his enemies, over the people's enemies, and doesn't bother to explain it, or it just says that the Messiah will bring victory and peace. Okay, well, that's, that's not very, 
that's not very helpful. All right. Um, let's see here. I'm going to just, I'm just going to look quickly. Um, Uh, okay, I'm just going to give you just quickly, oh man, we're an hour, four minutes. When the Assyrians shall come, this is quite correctly rendered. The prophet speaking in the name of the people looks forward to an Assyrian domination over the Holy Land. Many commentators unnecessarily suppose it to be a hypothetical clause Supposing that another Assyrian should invade our land, Israel will be able to meet him with abundance of capable leaders, right? So that, that don't really tell us what to do here. Uh, now, this is interesting. Okay, now, remember, according to the sermon, 5-1 is them facing danger of the Assyrians. Like, okay, like this is all happening right now. The Assyrians are right here. The Assyrians are right here. And so, so to give them hope, he points to the, to the Messiah. What some say is, well, that it really wasn't happening right then, but a few years later, a few years later from this prophecy being given, Sennacherib did with an overwhelming army come into the land. So they're, they're saying Sennacherib does actually fulfill this. So the way they're arguing is, this is the way it reads. 5.1 speaks of what is going to, bad is going to happen. Then in other words, hey, th- th- get ready. This is going to happen, but your king's going to be smacked in the face and going to be humiliated. But hey, here's, here's hope. The Messiah will come in verse two and three and four. But then in five, we go, now we jump, now we're going to, in a sense, we're, it jumps to the Messiah. Now it's going to go back and talk about the immediate situation about the Assyrians, right? So now this, this would make an argument that this is all about the Assyrians and not the Babylonians. Again, I don't know how verse one fits being the Assyrians because they get defeated. So they say this is a reference to Sennacherib who, who came in a few years later, um, and when by the power and the authority of the Messiah, the son of God, his preexistent state, the Assyrian army was defeated and Judea's, Judea, Judah's peace secured. When he shall tread in our palaces, when Sennacherib did in all the cities of Judah, except Jerusalem, against which he could not prevail because Emmanuel was with Hezekiah and the city as foretold and Isaiah. So what they, so the, the way they're arguing, all right, this may work, possibly. 5-1 is somehow referencing Hezekiah and referencing the Assyrians. Stop. Jump now to a prophecy of the Messiah. The Messiah is mentioned in 2, 3, 4. Then in 5, we go back to the threat of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to come in. And they're going to come in, but they're ultimately going to be defeated. And this goes back to the prophecy, or this goes to the idea that the Assyrians did come in and they were defeated because 185,000 of them were defeated and they run back. But how does that have anything to do with then the king of Israel being smacked in the face? 
Because how is he humiliated by God stepping in and defeating all of their enemies? And that's just a weird, like, here's the situation. Here's the promise. Now here's the, why wouldn't the promise be, hey, don't worry. Why, why, why would the promise jump all the way to the Messiah? Why wouldn't the promise be, don't worry, the Assyrians are going to come in, but I'm going def- to defeat them. Why, why? That just seems so weirdly out of order. Why wouldn't you continue to move towards the future here? We're going to have to stop there. We're going to have to stop there because we're in an hour and eight minutes. Wow. Verse five, verse five and six really throws in. uh, Now, and again, I can see now why he tried to connect this to the Assyrians. I can see now why he didn't do a very good job of explaining it. But it just to me, it doesn't fit. It just still doesn't fit. Because when it says our palaces, which palace? They didn't even make it into Jerusalem. And then they're defeated and then they all run away and, and Hezekiah is still on the throne. So how is Hezekiah humility? I don't understand how this, I, no, this has to be something future. It has to be something future. It doesn't make any other sense. I'm not saying it makes sense from a future perspective either because it seems completely bizarre from a future perspective. But it seems completely weird and out of place from what actually happened Historically, I mean, even, even, even the sermon that we're listening to who connects this to the Assyrians even said this did not literally happen. So even he can't find a literal fulfillment, even though he connects this whole chapter to the Assyrians. So even he can't do, so it doesn't, I don't think there's any way to say this fits Sennacherib coming in and then them being defeated. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So we'll have to work. Well, you know what? You have to work now, starting in verse five and six. Five, five through eight, that's what you need to work on. Five through eight. I think we've done everything we can in verses one, two, four. I think we've done everything we can in verses one through four. Five through eight, I don't know. At this time, at this time. All right, I'll stop there. One hour and 10 minutes. That's over two hours of work today. I hope you appreciate it. I hope you appreciate it because uh, it's cold outside. Had to put gas in the car, which cost $927,000. But hopefully coming out here and spending two plus hours trying to work through this has been beneficial. I truly hope that it was. You can let me know what you think. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. I hope so. Someone just said, thank you. I hope so. I Oh, I, I, I did the best I could. I just don't, I still don't quite understand. Well, I definitely don't understand what the sermon is doing, but man, these verses five and following are even more confusing, even more confusing. But uh, I, I've looked at, I'm trying to look at it from every perspective. I'm even trying to explain the perspective of the person preaching, trying to do a better job of explaining what I think his perspective is than he's even explaining it. So I'm trying to be as fair as I can be. But I just don't get what's going on in five through eight. But we will figure it out one way or the other. Tomorrow is Friday. I can't believe this week of Bible study is going by so fast. Um, if you're if you signed up for the Bible Memory app, please work on memorizing Micah five two. 
Memorize it, memorize it, memorize it. Use the use all the steps, right? First step, you're just typing in the first letter. Just use all the steps, get it down, memorize it. And uh, because we want to make sure we end this week with having something. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I, I, I really, I'm really worried about how to, how to uh, approach. I like, I don't even know. Like, do we just jump back into the sermon review? In fact, I need to write this down. We're at 19 minutes. We're at 19 minutes. Um, 19 minute mark. Yeah, do we, I almost want to jump back and finish the sermon review tomorrow. But at the same time, we got to work on five. I mean, he just, he just jumped past five and six like it was no big deal. Hey, this is just figurative. Jesus is going to defeat all of his enemies in a spiritual kingdom. Doesn't even explain what that means. Is everyone going to be saved? If not everyone is saved, then is his kingdom victorious over everyone? Like he doesn't explain it at all. Um, so, I mean, technically, I guess I can be a preacher and I don't have to really try to explain things. I guess, I guess probably would have a bigger church. But I can't do that. I'm, I'm stuck here and we've got, so I think maybe we'll have to come back, work on five and six and then pick up the sermon and then try to finish the sermon. I don't know. We'll see. According to, I think the person who's currently listening, I think they say that at some point he seems to go completely rogue and it just goes completely weird. I, I, I don't know how much weirder it can get, <laughs> But we will, we will, we will finish this review at some point. We will finish this. All right. Thank you. I'm going to go start the car and let it run for about five hours. Uh, I should have just let it run the entire time I was in here so that it would be warm. Okay. All right. But I'm going to stop now. All right. Everyone have a great night. Email me newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. I hope this was helpful. Let me know in the, in the uh, discord group. Throw out everything you can throw out and then email me whatever you want to email me and we will, we're going to figure this out one way or the other. All right, I'll stop right there. Everyone have a great evening. God bless.